Hi, welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Barber, and today we're speaking with King & Spalding partner, Darren Gardner, who leads the firm's global human capital and compliance practice. Darren joins us in this episode to discuss the complexities and trends global and multinational companies are facing and why King & Spalding has launched the first of its kind global human capital and compliance practice. Darren Gardner leads King & Spalding's global human capital and compliance practice. He's recognized globally as a pioneer in the area of international employment law. Darren's centralized advisor approach to international employment law has changed the way that many of the world's largest companies manage their global workforce and HR compliance issues. In the course of his career, Darren's undertaken more than 500 multi-jurisdictional strategic, transactional, and compliance-related projects covering more than 170 different countries. Darren is the trusted advisor to many of the world's largest companies in matters ranging from day-to-day complex cross-border employment issues on a single country basis to large and complex multi-jurisdictional workforce projects. Darren is well known for developing consistent global workforce compliance and risk management solutions for some of the world's largest companies. Darren, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. I appreciate you taking time for the conversation. Pleasure to be here. So I want to ask you a little bit about COVID-19 and the pandemic. We know it's in many ways, it's kind of forced the hand of innovation as companies and firms look forward to new ways of connecting with customers and driving business. What have you been observing? How do you think companies are innovating to keep work going right now? I think the model that's operated in the traditional and typical model has really had to change and had to change quickly. Most of, I think, the steps have revolved around certainly the, the adoption of technology, in particular, the use of the different platforms and collaboration tools. I also think that the forced remote work has been something that has really forced everybody to modify what they do and how they do it, but particularly in the short term. Most of the innovation has been around how to get things done in an environment that people aren't typically used to and where they're using technology and tools that and they're designed to, to facilitate interaction, but they're certainly not the same as face-to-face business. Right. Looking at some of these changes, we might have thought maybe a year ago, this is just a workaround, this is temporary. Do you think that the pandemic has fundamentally altered the way people and companies are working? How would you say? I do. I think both in the short term, and I think there's really what we are calling as part of our global human capital and compliance practice at King & Spaulding, a global transformation of the modern workplace. It is not the same and it's not going to be the same. It's something that it filters through not just the the day-to-day workforce interactions, but also all the collateral arrangements, the real estate requirements, the geographies, all of the services that you typically need when you're in the offices to be able, the security, the food, the catering, the the types of things that typically you're required that suddenly have gone away. And then things that you wouldn't necessarily expect, what types of technology requirements do you now have? How does the technology that you operate in, in the environment of the office work when people are remote? I think everybody's had to rethink really from soup to nuts. And I don't think anybody's there yet, nor do I think that we're close to where we'll end up. And I think it's really bespoke based on 
business requirements to a degree and location, but that transformation has certainly started to occur and I think it's going to continue. Yeah, I know you're monitoring this on at least a daily basis. What other related issues are you seeing on the horizon? I want you to talk to us a little bit about why you and why King & Spalding made the decision to launch the Global Human Capital and Compliance Practice right now. Delighted. I think taking the second part first, King & Spalding's been a a very entrepreneurial firm and, and has been entirely focused on staying ahead of the curve. We didn't set the practice up as a consequence of COVID. Mm -hmm. Really, it was more a function that the way that businesses are evolving and the way that our clients, particularly large multinational clients, are operating and the way they need to administer their workforce, the, the issues that relate to people have become far more important. There's been a huge, I think, shift in how the workforce is both you know, valued and how valuable it is. It's generally the biggest cost, but it's also often the biggest opportunity. And I think the development of those ideas around the broader internationalization of business, and I'll talk more about some specific issues later, but the idea that there's a, a now a centrality to, to workforce issues and dealing with centralized, integrated way on a global basis is something that certainly I've done throughout my career. But in our conversations, as we were were looking at establishing the practice, King Spalding really is a firm known for thinking about what's going to happen after what happens next. A lot of those issues are around people. And that was the basis for why we did it. And certainly it's been proven out in the first year of operations. In terms of the issues and challenges, the, the first part of your question that have arisen through COVID. It's been interesting. They really fall, I think, and again, much like the the sort of global transformation of the modern workplace, we're just seeing some of these issues start to arise. I don't think we're seeing anything like what will happen just yet, but there's a lot of challenges around the technology and the collaboration platforms, how people use them and what they do. There's a lot more familiarity, I think, and probably the interactions of co-workers has become a lot different than it is when you are in an office environment. It's much easier to create a framework and a structure and apply rules that you expect everybody to comply with when you have a common location. When people are using collaboration tools and they're in groups and they're speaking to each other in shorthand in ways where you have people in different countries, it's really starting to lead to both cultural and compliance issues that are really tough to regulate. And I don't think because of the speed that everybody had to react to the pandemic and because of the nature of the change, it wasn't something that you could really address up front. At the same time, the way that arrangements have been put in place and that they've operated during the course of the last year or so I think there's a little bit of forgiveness generally because everybody had to get it in place and it was really about well-being and safety. What happens as a consequence is there's a series of both management issues, I think, and compliance issues that as we get further into it and as the arrangements and that transformation continues to take place, we're really starting to see and we're going to see more of. They're the simple things that if you were to step back and look at the big picture, you would certainly identify the practicalities of 
doing it after it's happened make it that much more difficult, I think. What we're seeing, examples of, of issues, just how do you manage performance in particular roles in a remote environment where part of it depends on personal interaction? How do you frame the use of the collaboration tools to be able to make sure that all of the things that you would normally get with both your colleagues and customers can be addressed appropriately? How do you address leave? So how do you go on leave if you're working at home? And in countries outside the US where there are significant statutory entitlements, those accruals and those costs where you have large workforces are really material and can be contingent liabilities that are going to have to be addressed as companies move forward. At the same time, the flip side of leave and, and collateral to it, working hours. What's your ordinary day? Your ordinary day used to be defined often by when you're in the office. Now, you get emails, texts, and other prompts from different tools and social media interactions that typically weren't part of what you would do all day and all night. How do you comply with the laws and how do you pay people appropriately in connection with those types of issues? I think there's a series of challenges that have started to rear their head. There are some really obvious ones. Some of them are going to be issues that are going to have to be directly addressed. And for companies that have global workforces, there's some complexity and issues that that arise with that. Just the types of considerations that typically you wouldn't see and that don't need to be part of your management or your business operational model are going to be central to what happens as people continue in a remote environment. Yeah, very interesting to think about the rise of internationalization for firms right now. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about just the diversity of rules and regulations that companies are facing. And you touched on that a little bit, but what does the world look like right now for firms that are operating in multiple jurisdictions, multiple countries? Is it all streamlined and simple? Uh, Look, I think it's far from it. I suspect that one of the, harking back to why we did this, having a fully integrated, centralized approach to be able to deal with global workforce issues in circumstances where there's a strategic component in sort of how you do it and what you can do. And then there's also that fundamental compliance of what you have to do. One of the things we've spent a lot of time on is looking at how we help our large multinational clients, both ultimately make and save money in the best ways they can efficiently through their approach to the workforce, but at the same time, comply with the laws that apply, which are very different around the world. I mean, the US is so much different to any other country from employment law perspectives. It's a vast array of systems and processes, all of which you need to take account of. The other element that I think a lot of folks probably outside of those responsible for it don't think about is there's a huge premium based on corporate good citizenship and corporate culture is exceptionally important. It's not just about what you do from a financial perspective. It's about how you deal with it and how you treat your people. And I think the movement towards responsible investing and with the new in the US public company, SEC human capital reporting guidelines and requirements it's really starting to take shape. Those differences between countries and regions and the countries within regions, and in some cases, states and provinces within countries, Mm -hmm. can be pretty stark. And I think the ability to be able to have that centralised 
management system that enables you to have some certainty, to be able to protect your brand, to be able to promote your preferred corporate culture, and at all times to you know, stay out of the sight to the regulators is, is exceptionally important. There's a number of areas, I think, that are particularly topical and are, and are going to be more so that perhaps US companies aren't and haven't traditionally been as focused on, but with expansion and with the internationalization, they're now everyday issues for multinational companies. Just issues generally in some of the differences in employment laws and how they're enforced. Developing countries often have the most complicated systems because they're either archaic or they base them and modify them from countries that have exceptionally narrow and and specific requirements. And we've seen a lot of looks of surprise from some of our larger clients as they go into places that are not what they would anticipate and whether the issues they face aren't what they would have thought. And it's just around simple things, the working hours that I mentioned previously, the diversity and inclusion requirements that apply in different places, some of how some of the employment laws are operated and enforced is different around the world and how it's done in a civil law jurisdiction is very different to a common law jurisdiction. The development of privacy and how those laws have evolved and the requirements that, that you have not only for customers but also for the HR data that you handle, which when you operate a, a large human resource information system where data can be accessed about anybody anywhere, you know, it carries with it some obligations and some fairly material requirements that you have to take account of. The one I think that we are going to see perhaps the most attention given to, particularly with consequence of the pandemic and that global transformation of the modern workplace and the move toward more permanent remote work, mm-hmm. is workplace safety. Mm. Nobody quite thinks of their house or their bedroom or their kitchen as their workplace. Universally, or at least globally, is the case. And what it means is those laws, notwithstanding the fact that somebody might be sitting on a stool at their kitchen counter, the employer is still responsible for what happens in that workplace. Given the rush to remote work and given essentially the lack of time and and planning that was possible we're starting to see some real consideration given to what happens if you don't have smoke detectors or a fire extinguisher? Mm. What happens if you don't have a first aid kit? Because simple compliance requirements under the laws of many countries outside the US carry with them fairly significant criminal penalties. As a director of a company in particular countries, if somebody gets hurt falling down the stairs at, at their house and they didn't have a railing to grab onto, and they did it while they were going to make themselves a cup of tea, going from their bedroom to their kitchen, is the employer responsible for that? The authorities and what we are seeing in a lot of places believe the employer is. I think we're going to see a real evolution in some of these compliance and risk management issues. And I think that takes me back to the starting point of why was it that King Sport and we set up the Global Human Capital and Compliance Group? It was we saw these things starting to develop. COVID has accelerated them, but technology was certainly going to facilitate them and they were going to come up over time. Just fascinating, Darren, and so much just evolving on the horizon that we may have not quite ever really thought would be coming down the pipeline. And just hearing you talk too about the ability to view the complexity of 
how different governments handle different compliance issues is really interesting. I want to drill down into that a little bit to think from the client's perspective when they're coming to you. I think I'd like to hear what you see the benefit is for clients on having that type of perspective, being able to have someone they can trust to say, look, we've seen it play out in this type of way. You're going to need to anticipate that. But can you talk to me a little bit about how you're seeing, how you're helping and seeing clients really manage this type of complexity well and what that benefit is to have that type of clarity and context and perspective? It certainly goes to the heart of what I do and certainly what the team and I do for a living. The way that that global businesses operate is not workplace by workplace. And I think if anybody these days is going to try and run a 160-country business that has multiple locations within countries and deal with it on a one-off, non-strategic, integrated basis, that they're going to struggle because it's, it's very difficult to be able to do that. I think the real value that we've seen is being able to build strategies and develop systems that give you a globally integrated, single-source consolidated approach and system that enables you to operate your business within parameters that will satisfy the requirements around the world. As I said, companies really these days, they're not worried about what they do in a specific place because that's not what defines them. What defines them is their brand. And if you ask them who they are, it's really around what they do and how they're perceived and that good corporate citizenship on the one hand, is really important because that drives the compliance. There's also the strategic and the accountability element, both from a social responsibility, but also from a financial performance perspective. Being able to have advisors that have that global experience, I personally have done 500 plus projects covering 160 countries for some of the world's biggest companies. It gives you a view that really you know what is possible, you know what is appropriate, and it gives you the perspective to be able to address things in a way that is really underpinned by the the strategic elements that are most important to clients. I can tell you US multinational companies are really focused on that compliance element, on that good corporate citizenship and, and appropriate sort of meeting of all responsibilities, and their brands and their share price often depends on it. As we move forward, I think we'll see more and more of that. The value that we present is certainly that global perspective, but with local knowledge and experience. And at the same time, I think anybody who believes that one person or a small team can deal with every issue for all of their clients in every country around the world, they're either lying or misguided and they don't really do it. Having a full-service team and having a structure that is globally oriented And having a world-class corporate practice, having a world-class litigation practice, having a trade practice that's second to none, having the ability to be able to interact with regulators both domestically and around the world, and then tying that back to the type of human capital issues that companies are concerned about is really what we've done in building the global human capital and compliance practice. It's not a tricky name for a local employment litigation practice. It's really a very broad-based practice that both covers the strategy and compliance, but also addresses the litigation and all of the collateral corporate real estate tax, all the things that you don't really think that if you send one person to a particular location that it would have a 
an impact in the US. Just as an example, you know, last week I dealt with an issue where an employee from California, mother got sick, is from Argentina, temporarily located back to Argentina, and that was in May of last year. He's a sales guy, so he's revenue-based and he's been there for a year from a corporate regulatory, from a tax, from an immigration, and then ultimately a commercial perspective, you need a full team of folks with the ability to understand what the implications are to be able to address it, but also to be able to then come up with a plan for how you, you deal with those issues going forward. And they're the kinds of things that every day we are now seeing as a consequence of COVID and the response to it. Yeah, very fascinating. Just the practice group itself too, Darren, it sounds like you've really assembled a world-class suite of resources and talent, not just from the compliance perspective or the litigation perspective, but really understanding corporate citizenship, some of the drivers behind the cultural issues like diversity and inclusion and corporate social responsibility. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, because it sounds like a very thoughtful approach to get this team identified, assembled, the resources that are brought to bear when you're forming this type of practice group for clients. Could you talk to us a little bit about the thoughtfulness that went into it, what it's really designed to do? And I know you've hit on that a little bit, talking about that integrated, just having a strategic approach, being integrated about how you're approaching things. Love to hear a little bit more. Yeah, look, there was a lot of time and effort that went into the planning, both into the capability and the resources. Obviously, the core team, we've worked together for a long time. And that is honestly the team and, and the folks in it are the measure of success, I think. What we were able to do, King's Pauling had a whole series and still has, and we are growing practices that touch on the aspects that are collateral to the core of the human capital practice. Assembling that and really developing the systems and skills to be able to bring that to bear. I mean, we're one of the few firms that actually has a specific board director advisory practice where the reporting requirements as a consequence of the new human capital disclosures is, is only just starting to be relevant. But by having a truly global human capital practice and having all of the elements that touch it, I think we've got a, some interesting thoughts on how that might evolve and how the systems and processes that public companies are going to need to be able to address what happens. And look, frankly, you know, things that folks don't necessarily think of Trade unions historically have been fairly quiet, certainly recently. With the change of government in the US, I would anticipate that we're going to see some more activity in that space. And that goes to a whole lot of aspects of how business operates. You need to have the skills and resources both to understand it and to be able to respond to it. And things that, again, unions have very large pension funds and they get to decide what shares they buy and how it's a material investment vehicle. With the thoughts on ESG investing and with the importance of doing the right thing, it's not only coming directly from the workforce and the employees, it's really coming from organisations that are related to them that control significant funds that impact ultimately investments in public companies. All of those elements aren't, if you See yourself as an employment litigator. You aren't really going to be able to address those downstream issues, which are the things that are going to drive decisions at the board level in large companies. What we've done is really think through those types of issues. We've 
consolidated that expertise. We've recruited where we knew that we would need increased breadth and depth. And now we've got a practice that really is the full life cycle of all human capital issues that ties perfectly into the regulatory environment and into the corporate and commercial environment, either from a transactional, a strategic or a compliance point of view. Darren, hearing you talk, it really sounds like this practice is a little more comprehensive than what we've seen so far out there. Is anyone else taking this type of strategic and comprehensive approach? I think you'll find people will suggest that they are, but we obviously thought very hard about not only what we called the practice, but what we encapsulated in it. The human capital concept, to our knowledge, there are no other law firms that have a human capital practice. I think that's one of the, I would say, is a huge compliment to the firm and sort of to that visionary approach with it, because it really is where things are going to end up. You know, if anyone needs any validation of that, the fact that we launched and announced the practice and started operating prior to the human capital disclosure in the US is something that and no one knew that that was happening. And we, I think, have been fairly proficient at predicting what was going to happen over the years generally. But I think specifically with what we're doing and the trends we are seeing with our large multinational clients, I think firms will follow. I do think if we look at this in a year or two, there'll be any number of firms that suggest they've got a human capital practice. But I think the fact that we've been able to do it on a global basis, the things that we have included in it and the ability to roll in compliance and then all of the collateral aspects to it that King Spalding is famous for is, you know, it's been really pleasing for us. Yeah. Very interesting to see this type of innovative approach from you, Darren, and from King and Spalding. Thanks again for joining us for today's discussion in this episode of IMS Insights Podcast. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver consultative trial and expert services for the most influential global firms. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and well over 1,000 trials, and to connect you with the sharpest subject matter experts and meaningful insights on important matters. If you have a topic you'd like to hear more about or unique work in your own practice you'd like to share, email our editorial team at editor at expertservices.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Join us next time on IMS Insights. Thanks again.